Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have privilege to have to open your precious word tonight. Thank you for the example of this church that was faithful. Though they struggled in time of tribulation, severe persecution, yet they were faithful unto death. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ until you come for us. Speak to hearts, encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the churches in the book of Revelation, the seven churches, there are two that have nothing condemnatory written about them. And Smyrna is one of those. Smyrna, uh, a little bit about it, a little background that I found written about it, says it was a large, beautiful, and proud city, a center of learning and culture, was proud of a standing as a city. Quotes, Smyrna was an outstandingly beautiful city. It claimed to be the glory of Asia, unquote. It was a rich city, great trade city. Stood on the end of the road which served the valley of the river, Hermas, and all the trade of that valley flowed into markets and found an outlet through its harbor. It had a specially rich trade in wines. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a city of wealth and commercial greatness. We also know from history that it was a city deeply committed to idolatry and worship of the Roman emperor. On one famous street in Smyrna called the Golden Street stood a magnificent temple to Sibylle, Apollo, Asclepios, Aphrodite, and a great temple to Zeus. But the worship of those pagan gods was dying out. The real focus was on the worship of the Roman emperor. In 196 B.C., Smyrna built the first temple, the Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. Once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to worship the dead emperors of Rome. Then it was only another small step to worship the living emperors, and then to demand such worship as evidence of political allegiance and civic pride. And you know where this is heading, obviously. In AD 23, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 cities to build the first temple to worship the emperor, Tiberius Caesar. Smyrna was a leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. The Roman emperor, Domitian, 81-96 AD, was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty. According to ancient church history, it was under the reign of Domitian, Domitian that John was banished to the Isle of Patmos, 
where he received this vision. Emperor worship had begun to, as spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome, but toward the end of the first century in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, a Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar, and having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. All that the Christians had to do was burn that pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Receive their certificate and go away and worship as they please. But that is precisely what Christians would not do. They would not, they would give no name, man, the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. So this is the background to this church. And this is, somebody has called this the heroic church um, because they were faithful unto death. Uh, The word Smyrna actually means bitterness. And you can understand why if you read the letter uh, to the church at Rome. It is believed this church was pastored by Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. It's believed that John appointed him there to be the pastor at this church. And it's also recorded in history that Polycarp was martyred as a martyr. He was burned at the stake. He was, they were going to try and give him to the lions, but the lions had already been penned up, and, and so they burned him, um, which the fire didn't burn him. They actually stuck him with a sword. But anyway, uh, Smyrna was... Uh, was a um, a very wealthy city, but a city where great persecution was endured by God's people. And in his in his uh, addressing the church, the Lord Jesus Christ says, and under the angel, of course, which would be the pastor, probably Polycarp, it says, "Right, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works." and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And oh, the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So as he addresses the church, he addresses him as the first and the last, the one which was dead and is alive. You know, this would give them hope. You know, you're thinking about it, if you're in a time of persecution, when he says, I'm the first and last, you know, often in chapter 1, he talks about being the first and last. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. So, you know, though you may be in a difficult time, may be in the midst of hardships or persecutions as this church was, remember God is the one that has the final say. He's the one that's going to determine the end. It's not what you endure in this life that is the end. Or anyone that can control in this life can control that end. It's God who has that that say, that control. So he is the one. He is the first and he is the last. The message is he is the living Savior. The God it changes not. Of course, this would have been a great comfort to those which were suffering at Smyrna. Uh, He was the one, of course, you know, the one that was dead and is alive. Of course, referring to the fact that You know, Christ also suffered for us, the just for the unjust. 
And he was even put to death on the cross. He gave his life, but yet he overcame that death through the resurrection, as we see in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So, you know, they were reminded that he is the eternal God, the one that changes not. And, you know, though we do suffer persecution and sometimes rejection of men, but through Christ we have ultimate victory. The victory is ours in the end. Uh, even the grave, you know, even over the grave, uh, Christ was victorious. And so uh, we, we have this assurance because of, of the one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. But he, as he commends them then for a number of things, first of all, he said, I know thy works. I know. You know, if you're, if you're going through a difficult time, isn't it, isn't it encouraging and comforting to have someone who has been there gone through it and say I know what you're going through I understand now Bill Clinton said when he was president he understood our pain but he what he didn't understand he was the pain uh, no he didn't understand our pain no um, no Jesus said I know thy works I know. This would be comforting. Uh, the fact that God has all knowledge. You know, again, if, if there are churches being persecuted, does it, would it feel like they are being successful? No. You know, from, from man's standpoint, it would seem like you would feel like you're always being defeated. No, the Lord says, I know your works. I know your works. Again, it speaks of him having all knowledge of all things. He sees everything. You know, again, him walking in the midst of his candlestick, in the midst of his church. He knows all about their sufferings, their heartaches, their afflictions. And he knows, again, he knows our works, how to reward us in the future. And he, and he describes the persecution that they're enduring. The word, the word tribulation is mentioned here again. Uh, and the word tribulation has to do with outside pressures of life, daily circumstances, various afflictions that come upon us. You know, oppositions, attacks, oppression. You know, uh, could have been scourging. Uh, uh, you know, the confiscation of goods. All those things were were prevalent in that time carried out against the churches. So, it, you know, we're talking about physical persecution and, 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 and troubles uh, that were uh, directed against the church. You know, they, they of course, lived in an area, era where, where emperor worship was prominent. There was also a large, and, and, and this according to historians, and it makes sense here because of what verse 10 says, there was a large contingent of Jewish people here in this city. 
It's believed to be over 100,000 Jews in the city of Smyrna. And that, that's considered quite a large group. Uh, which, you know, in that day and time, who gave the Apostle Paul the most trouble? It was the Jews. So, so there was this tribulation, not only from the Roman government, but there would have been this problem from, from the Jews as well. So they, they, they suffered this, this tribulation, this persecution, this pressures. There was extreme poverty. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. The word poverty here means, doesn't mean just poor, but financial persecution. I mean, they were destitute. You know, taking a stand for them meant sometimes losing their businesses. Losing their jobs. Their means of livelihood. Just as a, you know, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapters 4 and 5, we find many there that, that were in need, and Barnabas sold, had land, sold it, and brought it laid at the apostles' feet to distribute unto the saints. That wasn't a welfare program. It's because some people, because they had trusted Christ, lost their businesses, lost their means of livelihood. I can understand this, growing up around the Amish. Because if you're Amish, if you're Amish, and you start saying that you believe you can know that you're saved. The Amish church will excommunicate you and put you on what they call the ban. And what that means is no Amishmen will buy or sell to you. And the, the saying is, if you're going to be put on the ban as an Amishman, you're better off moving. Because your means of income may be greatly affected. I had a young fellow that worked with me at the farm. I was back in Pennsylvania still working on the farm. And I witnessed him quite a lot. And this is what he said one day. And I was telling him, you know, actually it was his uncle, one of his uncles, that led a group that split off from the Amish church, and he was put on the ban. He had a harness shop. His name was Chris Beachy. And, and uh, they put him on the ban. They wouldn't, you know, Amish wouldn't buy from him. Uh, but um, he still succeeded in his business. But anyway, he taught that you could know you're safe. Amish don't believe, many Amish don't believe you can know. And I was talking to this boy quite a bit about this, and he said, well, I believe I can know. I said, you better not let your preachers find out. And one day we got talking a bit, and he was upset with some of the things and that they did to him. And, uh, and this is what he said. Well, I guess they wouldn't kill me. In other words, if he bucked their belief system, there would be extreme persecution. He was seeing a young lady. They were expecting to get married. He worked or at a pallet shop for an Amishman. You know, he's living in an Amish home and he's getting ready to buy his own house. He would have probably lost the young lady. He would have lost his job. See, that's the kind of things that happened to first century Christians. It still happens in some places. So they were, they knew what it was to have extreme poverty. You know, even in a colonial America, 
things like this happened because of the state churches. They would confiscate your property if you didn't show up in the state church. Well, it was it once a month or something like that. You know, they could, they would, they would, uh, they would uh, uh, either tax you, and if you didn't pay your taxes, they might confiscate your property. All for taking a stand for Jesus Christ. And so, they, were extreme, they knew what it was to be in extreme poverty. But the Lord says, thou art rich. Thou art rich. Somebody has said, quote, Every outward circumstance said that the Christians in Smyrna were poor, even destitute. But Jesus saw through the circumstances to see that they were really rich. Sweet-smelling Smyrna, the poorest but purest of the seven. Unquote. Somebody else said, in contrast to the Christians at Laodicea, thought they were rich, but they were really poor. Laodicea was a poor, rich church. Smyrna was a rich, poor church. Better to be a rich, poor church than a poor, rich church. You know, after all, riches can be, riches can be obstacles to the kingdom of God, an obstacle that some don't know how to overcome. You know, there's nothing wrong with having money. The trouble with money is so easily it has us. There's a story told of the glory days of the Renaissance papacy when a man walked with the Pope and marveled at the splendors and riches of the Vatican. The Pope told him, We no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man. Silver and gold have I none. His companion replied, But neither can you say, Rise up and walk. No, riches is a curse to many. And these, the church at Smyrna, understood what it was to be in great need, in poverty. Um, but the Lord reminded them, though they weren't rich in worldly things, they had the joy and peace of God that passeth all understanding. Uh, then notice also in verse 9, he says, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blaspheme of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now who exactly are this group that say they are Jews and are not? One commentator said he believes this represented organized religious system of the day of the Jews. And of course we know from the Bible that the Jewish people had really even rejected, they didn't even practice the law as it was originally given. They held to traditions and customs and, and uh, uh, place of the commandments of God. Jesus accused them of that. And, and it was a system based on tradition, lip service, and, and commandments of man and substitutes for the word of God. Uh, you know, it was they. You know, some people think, some people have this idea that you know, Judaism and Christianity are alike. I remember Pastor Webb, he gets, he gets irritated when people say that. He said, do they realize that it's Judaism that put Jesus to death? 
And Judaism was the first persecutors of the churches. Now, you know why they don't persecute the churches now? Because they don't have the power to do it. But whether they're in power, go to Israel and try to be a missionary there sometime. You might find out whether they would persecute you or not. They had slandered and persecuted the Lord while he was on earth. They called him a blasphemer, Matthew chapter 9, verse 3. A gluttonous and a wine-bibber who fellowship with publicans and sinners, Matthew eleven nine, And that he cast out devils by the prince of devils, Matthew nine thirty four. They accused him of being a lawbreaker, John 5, 16. That he was possessed by a devil himself, John eight fifty two, And implied that he was an illegitimate child, John chapter 8, verse 41. And so here again, these, this, these Christians at the church at, at Smyrna were suffering at the hands of the Jews. And again, this isn't anything new. In Acts chapter uh, 24 and verses 14 and also in chapter 28, Paul mentioned this. And of course, he also, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he, he, he talked about suffering of like things of my own countrymen. In Acts 24 and verse 14, he says, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing in all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And again in chapter 28 and verse 22, he says, But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And of course, it's spoken against in referring to the Jews. And so, they, of course, they rejected the gospel uh, in verse 24. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word, well spoke the Holy Ghost by Isaiah, the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of those people is wax gross, the ears are dull of hearing, their eyes have they closed, that should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. So, you know, they had, they had of course, uh, were continual persecutors of the churches. Of course, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will love godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, we in, in America don't really understand the physical persecution. But there is a reproach that goes along with being faithful to the word of God. You know, we have been called legalists because we have standards of music, dress, holiness, refer to those who uh, hold to lordship salvation which we talked about this morning you know simply means you believe in repentance and receiving Christ as lord we reject easy believism um, of course we believe in the local church only position which is you know criticized and 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 you know we've been, I've been called a Baptist brider. I don't know again, smoke screen. 
know, the sad reality of this is that at one time, all Baptist churches believe these things. Of course, then you got, came back the Southern Baptist Convention, the Northern Baptist Convention, and, and Billy Graham, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, so this is where you get all this compromise. And now there's all these, this proliferation, you know, the Jack Howells, all that proliferation of churches who, who at one time all taught this stuff. but no longer hold to it. You know, I hear sometimes about churches that split, and maybe the people come here, don't kid yourself. They leave here and go to those churches. Sad to say. You see, there's still a reproach that goes along with being faithful to the Word of God. Smyrna suffered immensely for their faithfulness. They could have just burned a little incense, but they refused. Uh, so they were persecuted. They were persecuted by these Jews, which say they are, or the, them that say they are Jews, but are not. Uh, you know, again, the characteristics of, of such a system, it's, it's like a state, a state religion, and it's in opposition to Gog. God. The synagogue, of course, the synagogue was like comparable to a church. It was a place where they met together. And he calls them the synagogue of Satan. You know, the scriptures were not their authority. They, again, they had the same spirit that persecuted Christ and crucified Christ, and they were still opposed to him. But the Jews are to this day opposed to him. It would have been a mixture, which was prevalent in that time, a mixture of law and grace. What do you get when you have a mixture of law and grace? Well, if we go back to the church at Ephesus, one of the things that was starting to creep in in the churches was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This would have been a priestly class or a class of clergy, conquering of the people, setting them distinctly apart, uh, which thing the Lord says, I hate. They would have preached another gospel. You know, all this stuff would have evolved eventually into what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. There were two, one commentator said there were two basic heresies prevalent in that by the end of the second century, it was a false doctrine of Christ, which would be a Gnosticism, which denied a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a mixing of law and grace, which is what the Jews, the temple did. And when you start mixing things, by the way, when you start mixing things, mixing law and grace, or you mix things with the world, who cares what you mix? You can mix Christianity and Judaism, or you can mix, mix Christianity and Rome, Rome worship. So these were the things that, that were troubling the church at Smyrna. But notice what he says in verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. That's encouraging, isn't it? You're going to suffer. Thou shalt suffer. 
Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, you know, they are talking about real tribulation. Uh, and I mean, you know, severe persecution. Vance Habner said this, quote, This tribulation does not mean the common trials to which all flesh is heir. Some dear souls think they are bearing their cross every time they have a headache. The tribulation mentioned here is trouble that they would not have had if they have not been Christians. So he talks about imprisonment, and he also refers to death. Uh, imprisonment. This is the way the world works. They, they pressure you or threaten you. If you won't do that, then, of course, they get more extreme and more extreme. Uh, imprisonment uh, would, would have meant you know, the end of a public ministry, uh, there have been separation, intimidation to silence others. It would put fear into the hearts of people. Uh, to weaken them, it would mean isolation. They didn't have nice, cozy, heated, and prisons with good prison food like we do today either. Uh, you know, it would mean public humiliation and trials. It would mani- and this, such a thing would manifest the true value of one's faith in the side of the world. And so, imprisonment. And then he says, that you may be tried, shall have tribulation ten days, be thou faithful unto death. You know, there's a possibility of death, of giving one's life. For the cause of Christ. This will of course be the ultimate sacrifice. That will be paid. It was believed that Polycarp. Polycarp according to history. um, Polycarp. Where is it here? I I did have it. Well I thought I did. Um, but anyway, Polycarp was eventually arrested and, and taken. Oh, yeah, Polycarp um, was martyred in AD 168, 86 years after his conversion, uh, and he was bishop, probably the angel the church here uh, was meant. And, of course, he, he, they tried to get him to recant, but he says, 86 years have I served my Lord, and I will not deny his name. Again, he was he was uh, put to death. So there's this possibility of being put to death. But he says, "Be thou faithful unto death." And notice the counsel that he gives us: fear none of these things. Because behold. The devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Fear none of these things. You know, we're not supposed to be fear-mongers. Fear none of these things. Now, some reasons why we, not, we should not fear. Because we belong to Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
1 Peter 2.9 says this, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. The peculiar people there has the idea of a specialty purchased possession. We are a specially purchased possession of God by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to Christ. You know, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We are in the hand of God. The only thing they can do to us, the worst thing they can do to us, is kill us. But again, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he said, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. See, he is the first and the last, and we belong to him. So we should not fear because we belong to Christ. We are Christians. Now, also, the Lord never promised exemption from suffering just because we're Christians. We do need to understand that. You know, some people have this idea, well, if they just get saved, all the problems will be over. You're living in a bubble. That's not the real world. You know, the real world is, world is full of problems, of injustices, of suffering. And I'm talking about the unsaved world, just world in general. And we're not exempt from it. And then add to that the possibility that we may be hated because we're Christians by some who are threatened like the Jews. That's really a lot of the reason for it. You know, it, you know, in, in this, this world we groan, being burdened. Romans 8 tells us that. So we're not exempt from the suffering and the consequences of sin in this world. Uh, and we ought not fear, fear, because fear is a source of defeat. Look at 1 John 4 and verse uh, 18. 1 John 4, 18. says, let's read verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You know, fear hath torment. You know, Saul was tormented. Why was Paul Saul, I'm saying King Saul, why was he tormented? He was full of fear. Its kingdom was threatened. So, fear is a source of defeat, and we ought not fear. Now, I have to say that if you're talking about persecution, 
I'm saying, you know, I don't want to see it happen. You know, the, the thoughts of that sometime causes me to fear. But then again, God gives grace when you need it, not when you don't need it. I remember an old preacher saying one time, he, uh, he, always, he always preached that, you know, when, when your time comes to die, God will give you grace and all that, you know. And so he had, uh, he had open heart surgery. And he has, he has three sons. Anyway, one of them was there, I guess, the day of the surgery. And when he came out, and we come out of the surgery, his son came in to see him. And he, and he said to his son, he said, well, I made it. And he said, well, I knew you would. He said, what do you mean I knew it would? He said, you always preach dying grace, and you sure didn't have it when you went in. Um, you know, fear is a source of defeat. It will, it will uh, um, stifle us. And then third, fourthly, because the Lord has overcome, we too, though we suffer, shall be able to overcome. You know, Jesus said in John 16, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the idea is, because I've overcome the world, you can too. I've made it possible. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John, in verses 4 and 5, says this, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? He that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. We may be tried, and we may be persecuted. We may be ridiculed. We may be shamed or abused. But we ought not fear. Because we are the Lord's. And since he overcame, we too also can overcome. But the fact that they are tried tells us that trials, you know, trials do have a purpose. Notice again, he says, I'm going to cast you some into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Trials are meant to test us, to test the genuineness of our faith. They, they demonstrate that our faith is real, that there has value in the sight of the world. You know, when the world, when Christians act like the world in times of suffering, it doesn't make any distinction. between us. You know, the Bible says we're to love our enemies. Pray for them that persecute you and despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now, he says ten days. Now, we don't know for sure. Nobody really knows what these tribulation ten days means. But, it was interesting, and I, and I, and I thought of this, and, and, uh, um, James Fawcett Brown in their commentary said this that explains the, the ten uh, days on the year day principle the shortness of the duration of the persecution has evidently made ground made the ground of consolation the time of trial shall be short the dur- duration of your joy shall be forever remember what back in Second uh, Peter 3.8 2 Peter 3.8, this is the verse that came to mind. As we think about, you know, our trials here on earth, 
and, and I, I thought this. What's the, what's, what's the, what's the average that we're going to live here in this world and endure the hardships and the afflictions of life? 70, 80 years? What's the reign of Christ? It's a thousand. So in comparison, it's eight days. Look at 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So when he says, I'm going to, uh, uh, you're going to be tried ten days. It's referring to the, you know, your, the time of your trial will be short in comparison to eternity. To eternity. It's like a drop in a bucket or a grain of sand on the beach. It's only for a little time. It's only a short duration that we endure the afflictions and trials of this life. Uh, some have thought maybe it was referred to the emperors. There were, there were I think, ten emperors that, that persecuted, but I believe it has to do with a time period. But anyway, he, then he gives them some counsel in verse 10. Fear none of the, again, fear none of those, fear none of those things. And he, I'm sorry, he gives us a promise. Promise is what I'm looking for. In verses 10 and 11. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Shall tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I'll give thee a crown of life. Now this has been special to the uh, those at Smyrna, uh, thinking about a crown of life, because there were there were uh, many crowns given out at Smyrna. Uh, there was kings' crowns. There was, of course. Um, uh, the crowns, Olympic type crowns. There was even a hill which they called the the crown of uh, Smyrna, where there was beautiful buildings or something. But anyway, but one commentator says this: a crown. This would be a crown without cares, corvals, envy, or end. Kings' crowns are so weighty with cares that oft they make their heads ache. Not so with this crown. The joys whereof are without measure and without mixture. You see, a crown of life, uh, which is received through being faithful unto death. This is a martyr's crown. Uh, assures us of the glories of eternity and rests from our trials that we will remember no more. And, and so he encourages them not to recant. Don't offer incense. Just escape, suffer persecution for a little time and miss the joys of eternity. And he says, Be thou faithful unto death. And then verse 11 he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh, here we have the idea of God's people enduring again, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now this, this phrase, second death, is only used in the book of Revelation. And it, it's used in chapter 20 in verse, uh, 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 verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. 
On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. The second death refers to being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Eternally separated from God. That is the lot of those who die without Christ. Eternally separated from God. You know, we may suffer in this life. There may be hardships and trials that we face. We have a God who controls the end. He's the first and the last. He'll have the final word. It's to him we have to give an account. Not to some man. It's to him that he says to be faithful unto death. And I will give thee. He has the power to give us the crown of life. He has the power to deliver us from the second death. And as he that can give us has the power again to give us the strength, the courage, and the grace to stand fast in any day and time in which we find ourselves. In our, even in our day. And so might we be found faithful as this church was? This was a faithful church. Faithful even unto death. You know, it means dying to self. Letting Christ be the Lord of your life. May we allow him to be Lord of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.